This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the BC government rejects the First Nations-led 2030 Winter Olympic bid. We'll have the complete fallout. Plus, BC copes with two atmospheric rivers in 24 hours. Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun joins us, along with Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. And as the Michelin Guide unveils its top Vancouver restaurants, we look at the city's ever-evolving food scene. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's begin with the story of the day. The government of BC says it will not support an Indigenous-led bid to host the 2030 Olympics in the province. Minister of Tourism and Sport Lisa Bear said today the government, uh, the Games, come with billions of dollars in direct costs and hosting could jeopardize the government's ability to address uh, pressures facing citizens. Uh, she says the current bid is, uh, cost is estimated at $1.2 billion and an additional billion dollars uh, in risk as well. Bear said the government must focus its efforts and resources on healthcare, public safety, and investing in affordability initiatives. Now, she said BC has already committed to holding the 2025 Invictus Games and being a host city for the 2026 World Cup. Now, the Lilwet, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations announced on February 1st that they had signed an agreement with the City of Vancouver, the Municipality of Whistler, the Canadian Olympic Committee, and the Canadian Paralympic Committee to explore a bid. Now, the bid for the 2030 Olympics was the first um, by an Indigenous-led group, and several of the parties involved have said it represented a a chance for reconciliation. Uh, Minister of Tourism and Sport Lisa Bear spoke a couple of hours ago to our Jill Bennett. Take a listen. So we've been working with the First Nations throughout this entire process and, and with the bid committee. That's, like it's a year-long process. This isn't, you know, this isn't a decision that was just made uh, today. Um, you know, we, we've been working with them all along. I met with the nations earlier this week to deliver the, um, you know, the results of the cabinet decision. And, you know, we're going to continue to focus on our, our priorities. And when we take a look at, at the size and scope of a, a project like the Olympics, you know, they're, they're extremely complex, multi-city, multi-venue, uh, you know, logistical transportation challenges. And then we, we all know what happened in 2010 with the, with the cost of security. So, you know, these are things that we have to all weigh against each other. And ultimately, it was this government's decision not to move forward. That is the Minister of Tourism and Sport, Lisa Baer. Joining me now to discuss today's announcement is Wilson Williams, a spokesperson for the Leadership Assembly and an elected councillor with the Squamish First Nation. Wilson, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, Wilson, uh, you heard uh, the minister there talking about um, the involvement of her government with First Nations communities. Your reaction, first of all, what she had to say there. Yeah, you know, yeah, they've been working with us, but they haven't met with the leadership assembly directly. And uh, even our latest request was denied as recent as yesterday, which is very unfortunate, you know, we had proper consultation during the uh, last uh, few months here. You know, we would all be on better terms, but, uh, you know, when, when they turned down the, the their support of the process, uh, it's very heartbreaking. 
Wilson, what happens now? Is this project uh, and this bid uh, effectively finished? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's hard to come to terms because it's pretty fresh off the uh, notification uh, board this morning at 11 that uh, the support of no support of the province uh, does fill the bid process and all the work we've done uh, the past year. Uh, it, it, why is holding a 2030 Winter Olympics important for uh, the respective nations, Lillooet, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, in regards to reconciliation? Um, many of these nations uh, here in the Lower Mainland, in, in, in the Squamish area, you have many other projects uh, around in and around reconciliation. You have many development projects as well. Uh, I, I look what the, uh, the Squamish nation are doing in regards to the Sinoc lands. You have Jericho lands. You have the Heather Street lands and many other projects that that most of the public wouldn't know about. Are there not other opportunities for reconciliation beyond just the Olympics? You know, there is. And, and we are doing a lot of good initiatives. For the Olympics itself, it's the first of its kind to be an indigenous-led process. If we're looking at true reconciliation, you know, the province alone has 204 uh, nations in the province, you know, you know, to be leaders of reconciliation or leaders of encouraging and empowering our indigenous communities to use their voice, but also feel like they have a voice because, you know, our nations were looking at spearheading this process and really having that inclusion of everyone's respective traditions and cultures respected during the games and their story to be told. And that's true reconciliation, but not only that, working together with our respective external governments and entities to build strong relations, um, which is very unfortunate that where we're at today. We're speaking to Wilson Williams, who is a spokesperson for the Leadership Assembly. He's also elected councillor for the Squamish Nation. We've had some... Wilson, uh, I'm going to just ask uh, ask that same question I asked before. Many have said, look, the Musqueam, the Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, uh, and the Lillooet have many other projects before them when it comes to development. Uh, I look at the Sinoc lands, the Jericho lands, um, the Heather Street lands, and many other projects uh, each one of your individual nations have. Uh, can reconciliation not be uh, uh, focused on those areas rather than worrying about uh, uh, you know a twenty thirty Olympic bid. Oh yeah, of course. I think um, we look at the picture. Yes, we there's a lot of initiatives that we're working with the province on uh, currently, and you know it's unfortunate that you know the project with the Olympics is you know is dead dead now, but um, definitely have. Uh, and to confirm, in your mind, there is no way to resuscitate what has occurred here uh, through further negotiations, the federal government getting involved. There is no way you can resuscitate this bid at this point. You view it uh, as this is the end of this conversation? Yeah, it's very unfortunate. You know, uh, you know we're relying on the province to... The, or the process, indigenous-led process, to um, to continue to work together. Does this change your view of the NDP government? Do you view the NDP government um, 
still believing in the issue of reconciliation or do you think it is more um, uh, window dressing for them it, it, because of this decision? You know, I'm just concerned on whose terms and who controls when they decided to acknowledge and conduct Sorry, Wilson, I'm just having difficulty hearing you. I just want to confirm what you said here. You're saying that their idea of reconciliation is there on their timeline, their schedule, their view, not on First Nations view. Is that the gist of what you're saying? Yes, exactly. I think, uh, you know, we want to be put in a position where we work together and we are being heard. And I don't feel that was uh, equitably... um, transpired in this process with the province. Mm-hmm. Does this change your image and view of, of the NDP now? Yeah, you know, I, I'm concerned of the overall politics of, you know, whether it's an, an old, old guard of uh, how politics is done and how they treat Indigenous peoples. Uh, I'm concerned there. Um, and when you put a party at stake, I, I, you know, I'm really concerned of uh, the spirit of reconciliation. What is true reconciliation to to the province? And, you know, we want to empower Indigenous peoples throughout the province. And, you know, this sort of improper consultation and work with the leadership assembly of the 2030 bid with the four nations um, will improperly... Wilson, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thank you. Sorry again. Thank you, Dad. Let's uh, catch up with uh, Kevin Falcon. He's the leader of the uh, opposition, uh, talking to him a little bit about uh, this particular uh, 2030 Olympic bid that has been, um, well, rejected, cancelled, whatever you used to call it. And, of course, Mr. Falcon was uh, front and centre uh, during the 2010 Winter Olympics and the B- with the BC Liberal government. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Jeff. So your reaction uh, to this announcement by uh, the NDP government? Oh, I, like, I am extremely disappointed. And, and I just want the, the public listening out there for a moment to just put aside the Olympics for a second. Here was this unbelievable opportunity where we had four First Nations excited about the opportunity to have an Indigenous-led Olympics, meaning that they would have an equal voice at the table for governance and planning. They would work with the province and the city to to get this thing going and up and running. It would have been the first Olympics ever led by Indigenous nations. I think it would have enjoyed enormous interest from around the world. The whole Indigenous angle, I think, would have just been fascinating uh, for, for people from around the world. It would have really demonstrated how we're walking the path of reconciliation together with First Nations. And, and to think that David Eby, one of his first things he does as incoming premier, is to, is to shut it down. And, and here's the part that bothers me. It's how they did it. Why couldn't they at least meet with these folks that have been working so hard for so many months at their own cost with no support from the province to try and bring this forward? They were excited about it. And to give them a kick in the teeth like that uh, with you know a few hours' notice, I just think is a real setback for, for reconciliation. From people, frankly, they're always virtue signaling about it. But when it came to doing something that could have really advanced the cause, 
um, just really let down First Nations. And, and I think the broader province, I think it's a huge missed opportunity. What do you say to the argument that, look, we have priorities, there's only so many, finite amount of dollars here. We've got huge issues with the um, healthcare system that is uh, strained under COVID. Uh, we've got uh, priorities um, in and around public safety. Uh, it's all going to cost money, and that's where the priority should be at this particular point. And mental health and addiction is another one. That's what we're, we should be focusing on rather than uh, a bid for a 2030 Olympic Games. As much as we want one, we have already hosted one, and this is not the priority at this point. Sure. So, first of all, those are all legitimate concerns. People should raise those. They do every time. Look, I, I think it's important to understand. Uh, you know, back in the day when the government of social credit wanted to do the Expo 86, a lot of people, the NDP especially, opposed it back then. It turned out to be a really tremendous event, really boosted the confidence of us as a province and, and created awareness about our beautiful city. Uh, 2010, same thing. You know, the NDP were strongly opposed to that. In fact, David Eby, I recall, he was with the BC Civil Liberties Union, was having his people follow around the police and was trying to uh, protect the rights of anarchists to riot in the streets and to cause all kinds of problems there and said that, you know, it was going to turn BC into a police state. Um, so I'm not surprised at the continued opposition to these things, but I do think people have to understand that virtually all of the infrastructure has already been built. We built it for the 2010, and there's huge opportunities for legacy investments especially on the housing side in Vancouver and Whistler and Kamloops, that was part of what the uh, the four First Nations were talking about, that could have had wonderful uh, benefits down the road. I also think there was a huge opportunity because of the Indigenous-led nature of this, of this proposal to have the federal government, frankly, backstop uh, a lot of the downside financial risk. And, you know, there, there's not going to be a massive infrastructure cost like there was in 2010. But even those Olympics... Uh, we're delivered on schedule, on budget. We had a huge amount of interest from around the world. I think it raised the profile of the province tremendously. And I think this is a missed opportunity for those First Nations to, to really demonstrate to the world uh, the incredible reconciliation we're doing together here in British Columbia. I got about 30 seconds left. But in your mind, uh, just like Wilson said, this project is, is dead. It's done because of this decision today in your mind. Or do you think it can be resuscitated? Well, I think it could be resuscitated with, with, you know, the right leadership that says, hey, wait a minute. Like, why wouldn't they at least have a meeting with the federal government and the First Nations first before they make this decision? Get everyone in the room, the city, the, the feds, the First Nations, and say, look, can we do this in a way that makes sense, that protects the downside risk to taxpayers, that advances the cause of reconciliation? I think they could have. It's a huge missed opportunity. They said no. They did it in a very discourteous way that I think is not consistent with their, you know, the talk that they always talk about with reconciliation. And I think that's unfortunate. Missed opportunity. Kevin, thanks for your time, my friend. Thanks for having me. Protesters will be linking arms around the world to show support for the ongoing demonstrations against the Iranian government. Uh, This weekend, Freedom Human Chain protests are being planned in 10 Canadian cities, including Vancouver, Calgary and Edmonton. Uh, In Vancouver, protesters are set to form a human chain between Stanley Park, across Landscape Bridge, all the way to downtown Vancouver. The event begins uh, at 2 p.m. And of course, uh, this is all... Uh, instigated uh, by an event in uh, in September when 22-year-old Gina Masa Amini died while detained by Iran's morality police for not properly wearing a hijab. Um, her death sparked the largest Iranian protest movement seen in years. Um, the demonstrations uh, spearheaded by women calling for an end to strict rules on behavior 
and appearance. Another uh, individual who has been really leading the the uh, protest has been Tamane Zadegi. Uh, she's with the group Iranian Women Lives Matter. She has been um, uh, she's a protest organizer and has been on our show before. Uh, and I look forward to chatting with her again today. Hello, Tamane. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. Give me a sense of what you are seeing and hearing from Iran yourself presently. Um, I, I think, you know, the, this week a lot of people will participate in Human Chain, which is happening coming Saturday, starting at 12 noon. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are happy that we got the report from UN uh, about the violation of human rights in Iran, and they're happy that the world finally is paying attention to what is happening in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the desire to have con- continue to have more protests uh, in and around downtown, uh, or is this uh, is it difficult like to attract support right now, even downtown? I know you had, it's a, you've had some very large protests. Is the desire still there to keep speaking out? Yes, there is, because, you know, like every night, uh, young people, people, are, you know, women and men are coming on the, st- uh, on the street in Iran. And uh, as you know, over 43 kids being shot to death, they were under 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And still so many have been arrested. They are in prison. And the Iranian government, you know, like do all sorts of stuff to crack down the protesters, such as, you know, like ar- arresting in mass, shooting at people, you know, like killing, executing. And so uh, even, you know, like it was last week, I think one of the notorious prison, uh, every prison got uh, into fire and and the people who are in prison, they said it was an intentional fire to, you know, like make a mess and uh, stopping people from protesting. So they do everything. And even they shoot at the people who were in Zahedan, they were in mosque, and they were going after, you know, pray to go protest about the uh, rape of a young girl, which happened by one of the surgeons. So, like, they shoot at the innocent people there. And this kind of, you know, act is happening every cities and every provinces that people coming on the streets. So people are so angry and they are aiming this time to change the regime, you know, like to topple down this regime. And so uh, inside and outside, they are supporting each other. And every week we have over 10,000 people every weekend. They come out and they try to be the voice of you know, Iranian. It is still a, a regime that um, that uh, is fighting for survival, continues to fight f- uh, for survival, and use, uses tactics that, um, while are inhumane, as you know very well. Uh, how weakened, weakened do you think the regime is? Um, they are very weak because, you know, like now they are on the... Uh, you know, like uh, the attention of the, the internet, like uh, many people around the world, they are uh, aware of what is happening there. And uh, they were trying to a lot to get to some sort of, you know, like a conclusion uh, or result from the negotiation for the, you know, like um, uh, the deal they had with the United States. But now, because of the international pressure on them, and the international, you know, like people, people are seeing them in the international uh, scale that what they are doing uh, for the today's people. So they are under uh, a lot of pressure uh, internally and uh, externally. So uh, they are so weak, and, and they are trying so hard to do any act of inhuman. 
to suppress this, you know, like movement again, because this is not the first time people came uh, on the street. It has happened many times. Uh, I, I can uh, say like this is the fourth uh, massive upright. And um, in the past, Iranian people didn't get that much international attention, but this time they are getting attention. Can so the, think, can the yes. regime fall? Uh, or is are we still many years away from that? I'm certainly it may be weakened, but can it, but will it fall anytime soon in your mind? I think yes, because in, now we see a lot of people who were silenced, uh, like uh, our actors, our singers, our you know, like uh, so many people, uh, even some of the member of parliament, you know, like they are resigning from their positions. We see, you know, like the principal of the schools and doctors, for example, two days ago, they were on the street and protesting, you know, like against this brutality. And uh, I can see the fraction even among the member of parliament, and they are saying, you know, like, we cannot continue like this. And when there is a fraction among the government, uh, you know, like, that, that, that's a big sign that this regime cannot, you know, like, continue like that. Tamine, thank you so much for your time today, and best of luck to you this weekend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's revisit uh, a situation or story we covered in the first uh, half hour of this show. Of course, the government of BC says it will not support an Indigenous-led bid to host the 2030 Olympics uh, in the province. Uh, the Minister of Tourism and Sport, Lisa Baird, made that announcement today. Uh, Baird said the government must focus its efforts and resources on health care, public safety and investing uh, in affordability initiatives. She also said BC is already committed to holding the, tw- holding the 2025 uh, Invictus Games uh, and being a host city for the 2026 World Cup. Take a listen to Lisa Bear. When we uh, were first approached around the 2030 bid, we hadn't yet secured FIFA and we hadn't yet secured Invictus. And we made very conscious decisions in 2021 coming out of, of COVID to support uh, the FIFA bid and to support the, uh, you know, the Invictus bid, uh, to support a tourism sector that had been decimated. But when you look at the size and scope and the scale and, and the $2 billion price tag, I mean, currently uh, FIFA is estimated at around $260 million. You know, there, it's just it, the size and scale. You know, you're, you're looking at multi-city, multi-venue, huge security logistics, huge transportation management. There's, there's a number of things that are different in the bid. Now, the bid itself um, is uh, among four nations, the Lillooet, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. They announced in February they had signed an agreement with the city of Vancouver, the municipality of Whistler, uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee, and the Canadian Paralympic Committee to explore a bid. It would have been the, for the 2030 bid uh, is uh, said to be the first Indigenous-led uh, Olympics. Joining me now to talk about uh, the decision today that was announced in Victoria is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Hey, Jed. Uh, is this a sur- was this a surprise? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, talk about flying below the radar. This bid has just never been talked about over here. Uh, when we first asked John Horgan, Premier John Horgan, about this some time ago, certainly far less than any sign of a commitment, just like, hmm, oh, that's interesting. We'll just have to take a look at a uh, closer look at it when more details become apparent. It never comes up in scrums or, or news conferences with the, with the premier or ministers. And again, when we were tip, when I was tipped that, hey, this is coming today, I went, oh, yeah, the 2030 Olympic bid. You don't hear much about that anymore. And you contrast that to the 2010 bid, mm-hmm. um, night and day. 
uh, the level of energy and interest that was attached to the 2010 bid, which was started by the NDP governor, Glenn Clark, in the 1990s. I remember recall. that. Yeah. Um, and then championed by Gordon Campbell and the Liberals. Uh, Olympics, in my mind, have I used to be an ardent Olympic Games fan, but over the years, uh, fewer and fewer cities are bidding on these games. They're becoming more and more problematic when it comes to security and costs. And then you throw in the fact the pandemic has reshifted priorities and refocused uh, priorities for, on so many levels for so many people. And it's certainly shifted in the political uh, sphere as well, where these are not looked upon as the big shiny toys that they were, say, 10, 20 years ago. So I never thought this was going to get to first base because one of the gaping holes in this is they, there was a, an expectation there would be a huge private sector uh, investment in this. Uh, and the officials I talked to in government today said the, the financial exposure to the government was enormous. It was far more than the $2 billion the minister talked about because it lowballs the security uh, number. And it also doesn't take into account the province would be on the hook for any missing private sector money. Point to me anywhere right now where private companies are investing $1.5 billion in something. It just isn't happening, and it wasn't expected to happen here. So, again, bottom line, no surprise. Will this damage uh, the NDP government's relationship with uh, First Nations community, especially in and around the broader conversation of reconciliation? Well, there's 204 First Nations. These are four First Nations who are four of the... I would say wealthiest First Nations in terms of the land holdings, uh, who are heavily involved. And you uh, talked to one of the chiefs there about the fact that they've got a lot of developments going on that um, that in, over time would would uh, exceed what we're talking about here with the Olympic bid. I think it's uh, it's a potential setback, but as much as the, this particular one goes down, there are other deals being signed all the time and economic partnerships with First Nations that are being approved particularly for a number of First Nations who, who are, have serious uh, poverty issues. So uh, this is a more high profile, and of course there's going to be disappointment, but I don't think this is a, really a fundamental change in reconciliation, which is going to be hard to, to uh, pull off anyways. I mean, this is going to be a challenging file. It's not going to be done overnight, and it's not just one project or one uh, situation. It's multifaceted, and it's going to go on for some time. Uh, in regards to the NDP themselves, this decision, would would Mr. Horgan be driving this, or Mr. Eby be driving this? Because uh, one would argue this is probably them looking at election 2024 and going, what what is actually palatable to the taxpayers who pay for this? Because when I'm hearing uh, Minister Baer, like, look, our priority right now are public safety, health care, and affordability initiatives. In sense, what they're basically saying is we're trying to read the room here. Yeah, I think what's driving this is cabinet. Cabinet makes these decisions. And this is very much a, a consensus government that Horgan and you and I have talked about this before. Horgan isn't taking the lead role on, on many things since he was premier. He allows his line ministers to do the work uh, and to do the homework and come to cabinet with some recommendations. So I think this is very much twofold. One, it's a cabinet decision. Uh, that is made in consultation with each other and the civil service who do the due diligence and come to the table with some recommendation or with some, some guidance. And then, of course, you always have to put a political lens on it. Right now, the dominant issues out there are uh, street crime and health care. And that's what's dominated in the legislature. And that's, those are not going to go away for some time. Uh, health care, in many respects, it is about dollars. And in terms of also cl fighting climate action and housing affordability, all those are far more bigger priority 
areas in terms of funding and program and resources than an Olympic Games, which is going to potentially cost the taxpayers well north of $3 billion when we took all the entire financial exposure. Uh, the feds weren't going to identify the province here for any losses. Uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee doesn't really factor in, in something like this. This would have been the province holding the bag of a very expensive exercise that, again, usually gro- grossly underestimates the security costs, which uh, happened in 2010. Uh, was an enormous security cost. It would be an enormous security cost here that I don't think is reflected realistically in some of the numbers that have been associated with this. Keith, thank you. All right, guys. This week, the B.C. government urged the public to prepare for stormy weather as a pair of atmospheric rivers approached different parts of the province. Environment Canada forecast a narrow band of heavy precipitation over the north and central coast yesterday to be followed by another one over Vancouver Island and the Lower Mainland today. Now, this is, of course, occurring uh, just as a Senate committee report came out today that looked at BC's 2021 floods. uh, And basically, the report uh, says that action needs to be taken now to build flood mitigation infrastructure and manage transboundary waters that the province wants to avoid uh, future disasters. Now, one man who knows uh, exactly what that uh, standing Senate committee uh, was talking about is, of course, our next guest. Henry Braun is the mayor of Abbotsford, and he joins us now. Hello, Henry. Hi, Jazz. Good to be with you. Good to have you, my friend. Uh, first of all, uh, how is the community doing in regards to just preparing for this atmospheric river uh, that's supposed to pass through the lower mainland the next 24 hours or so? Well, people, uh, some people on Sumas Ferry are a bit uh, nervous because, uh, uh, you know, we've heard that word atmosphere. The first two atmospheric rivers mm-hmm. are set to arrive, and uh, but I just want to assure the community that uh, these are relatively tame compared to what we had uh, uh, last year. Now, having said that, I also can't see into the future uh, beyond 10 days uh, based on uh, you know, the weather reports, but uh, we, like many communities, are keeping a very careful eye on the weather. What's the last year been like for you? Uh, not only uh, the events of November and early December 2021, but uh, the aftermath, uh, not just uh, immediately helping your community, but the meetings and, and, and trying to do something and trying to be proactive about all of this afterwards. What, give me a sense of what the year's been like for you. Well, it's been very, very busy with, uh, you know, our um, our preferred option uh, uh, plan for uh, mi- uh, flood mitigation, uh, the new pump station that we're advocating for on the Sumas River mm-hmm. uh, to replace the floodgates, which is the weak uh, component of our diking and irrigation system. And um, it just, it's a lot of work. Uh, and uh, that's not a, comp- I'm not complaining. Uh, we are making good progress. Uh, you know, I talked to uh, Minister Farnworth even this morning about this. Uh, I think I see light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, but the paperwork and the process and the analysis and the assessments and all of the engineering that goes into all of this stuff takes an, a, a lot of work. So, yes, I have been uh, laser-focused on this file. I was hoping that we were going to... Uh, have an answer uh, uh, before I left office on November the 7th, but it does not appear that way. But I don't think we're far off. So in regards to the dollars, the, they've been promised, and this will go ahead, but it's just getting all the, 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 the process uh, that you have to get through. It has to be done. Yes. Well, what we have been advocating for is to decouple the pump station on the Sumas River from the rest of the uh, option plan that we presented to the province in June, with a funding request. And the reason for that is there is going to be a ton of meetings between Americans, Canadians, uh, First Nations, uh, both sides of the border, 
Um, that's going to take a longer time. But what is critical and crucial for us is to get that pump station built on the Sumas River. And I have yet to be in any meeting or talk to anyone who has said, that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks it's a good idea. So we are pushing very hard uh, with the advocacy on that part. So the rest of the plan is probably going to take seven to ten years, I think, based wow. on Based on, well, it's just, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of voices that want to speak into this, not just from BC, but from some from across Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and uh, do you think the money will be there for that? Well, the federal government, uh, Minister Blair has told me on several occasions, uh, when he was out here in February, I think was the first time, uh, yes, it was, uh, sorry, no, it wasn't, uh, I don't have that date. Um, but he said that if it's a priority for the province, now I'm talking about the pump station, not yes. the whole plan, cause the, but, but I agree with the Senate uh, report that came out. I just glanced at it very quickly. I'm going to read through it slowly tonight. But uh, Minister Blair said if the, if, the, if the pump station is a priority for the province, then uh, they were prepared to fund it. Um, moving forward, uh, just for a moment, uh, what advice would you want to give to other mayors and other communities? Uh, you, as a community, dealt with the, the, the brunt of it, but I look at communities like Surrey, uh, Delta, uh, all of them uh, have di- diking systems as well. Um, what advice would you give to those communities uh, who also will be looking at this? Richmond is another one uh, in regards to getting things done. Well, you know, I'm not really familiar with uh, other cities. Uh, what makes us a bit co- peculiar is that uh, they don't have, any, I don't think any of them have any danger of the Nooksack coming across the border. That is what caused all of this. Had it not been for, it's not a breach. Uh, I quit saying the breach of the Nooksack. It did breach, but not, that didn't cause our problem. There is no dike or levee, as they call it, at Everson. It is. It is really a, a relief valve on the right bank of the Nooksack River for overflow um, to prevent flooding in Ferndale, Linden, and Bellingham. And that was a conscious decision that was made by the Americans in 1999. We were only became aware of it through uh, uh, circumstances probably four or five months ago. Mm-hmm. But that was a conscious decision. The Americans are not going to build a dike. They have been creating a floodway to send that water uh, or to let allow that water to just flow downhill into Abbotsford. So our mitigation plan is designed to actually take that American water, because it's coming whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. uh, when it overflows, and pump it uh, with the new pump station and get it on the other side of the dike, which is about seven meters higher than the Sumas dike, and into the Fraser. And that, that makes perfect sense to everybody I've talked to. Henry, thank you so much for your time, my friend. And I know you're wrapping up. Uh, you didn't run in the last civic election. Your time is going to end on November 7th. I uh, just want to say absolute pleasure chatting with you. We look forward to having you on the show, perhaps in a different capacity, but look forward to chatting with you again, my friend. Be happy to do that. And I'll keep a very close eye on the discussions on the Nooksack and the, our flooding uh, issues after the 7th as well. We were speaking to Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun on some of the uh, last year, some of the challenges before the committee. Uh, He, of course, will be stepping down as mayor on November 7th. We touched a little bit on the uh, Standing Senate Committee on Agriculture and Forestry. They came out uh, with a a report today on BC's 2021 flood. Some interesting um, comments overall, but basically they talked about uh, how uh, BC needs to build flood mitigation infrastructure and manage transboundary waters uh, with uh, Washington State uh, moving forward. But, you know, give 
give you a sense of how uh, large of a problem that we have before us, and it's not this government or the past government, it's, it's all of us collectively. When you look at our diking system, 87% of the dikes in the Lower Mainland were in less than fair condition, and 71% of the dikes were expected to fill simply by overtopping in the event of a flood. So we have lots of work ahead of, ahead of us. One of the uh, uh, key individuals who has to deal with all of this is, of course, Mike Farnworth, our Minister of Public Safety, who joins us now. Hi, Mike. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Let's talk a little bit, first of all, of the present situation with this atmospheric river. What have you been telling the public? Well, we do have an atmospheric river right now, and it is a typical uh, seasonal storm that we would expect at this time of year. Um, We're in contact with both Environment Canada and the the River Forecast Centre that monitors um, these kinds of events. And so what we're seeing right now is, is something that's pretty typical uh, that, uh, in fact, is hitting us right now and will be, um, you know, uh, yesterday, today, and probably into to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so dropping nowhere near the amount of rain that we got, uh, on, you know, in November of uh, last year. You're looking at about 50 to 100 millimeters of rain west Vancouver Island and then the North Shore and the Sunshine Coast between about 40 and 80 millimeters. Um, so, yeah, it's an atmospheric river, but it's nothing on the scale uh, that we saw last last year. And there that has being been... said, we are watching for one uh, for uh, about a week from now, which looks to be a bit stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we uh, will you know, uh, provide information as, as, as we get a clearer picture of, of what's happening. There's been talk in the past, I recall, of rating these atmospheric rivers, kind of giving them a one, a two, a three, or a five. So people have a sense of how serious and how, how, how big it could be. Is that conversation still going? On. Yeah, so there is a system that they have in the states, which is a, a one, two, three, or four. I think it goes up to five. Uh, and and using their system right now, the one that we are experiencing right now will be ranked at two. And I think the one that was last November would be either four or five. Uh, I know that Environment Canada is working on uh, a ranking system or rating system for Canada, um, and uh, that they are that that work is is underway, but I don't know when something like that would be uh, be implemented. Now, there's a, it's a huge issue, but in regards to what happened in November, a huge impact on our farming industry, and most importantly on people in their lives. And I know you were very busy during that period. Can you give our audience a sense of lessons learned and what we're work what we're doing right now uh, collectively as a government in regards to? dealing with these issues, a getting money to folks that still may need it, infrastructure, and then mitigation, how we deal with, so we don't have to you know, deal with this issue in the future. I think there's a number of, 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 of lessons learned. One, obviously, is in terms of uh, a, a, an understanding of the kind of, of weather systems that we will be, that we are going to be facing more and more of. Uh, and so that means, you know, ensuring that the River Forecast Center has additional resources that it needs. Uh, it means making sure that we've got the the equipment and the the ability to to uh, move that equipment uh, very quickly to whatever parts of the the river are, are or whatever parts of areas that are going to be flooded, whether it's sandbag sag sandbag machines, those kinds of things. But I think the big thing uh, takeaway is a, is to get a really good understanding of the ground and the the terrain that's prone to flooding. So it means using some of the latest technology. We've had a lot of flood mapping, but there's still areas that need that need flood mapping. So using things such as LIDAR, uh, I think it means better cooperation and collaboration with our neighbors to the south when it comes to some of the challenges we face here in the, in the lower mainland, uh, in particular um, around the Nooksack River. Mm-hmm. It means the, um, you know, 
I think it really brought home the question of our transportation networks and our supply routes uh, in terms of how they can be impacted and what was required to get them back up and running. So there's those, all of those things. And then there's the big issue, which is, is dikes um, and the diking system and the fact that the range of dikes that we've had, where we've had this patchwork approach over several dec- over decades now, and the situation with orphan dikes. So it's putting together a strategy that deals with 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 all of those things. That work is underway in the Ministry of in the Ministry of Forests. It's recognizing that there are communities, First Nations communities, that are particularly impacted because many of them are outside of dikes. Um, all of those things, and and our emergency management system in terms of how we are able to notify uh, able to notify people that it's a it's not as some people seem to think a silver bullet by having just one system like an emergency, like the intrusive alert. It's a whole range of, of systems that have to be in place, and that's what we want to make sure that we've got. Mm-hmm. Mike, thank you so much for your time. I know you've had uh, uh, lots on your plate the last little while. I appreciate you chatting with us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Elon Musk claims that he is buying Twitter to help humanity as the billionaire set out uh, his aims for taking over the social media platform. In a tweet, Mr. Musk said that he didn't buy the firm to make more money, I did it to try to help humanity whom I love. Now, the entrepreneur has until tomorrow to complete a $44 billion U.S. dollars uh, takeover of Twitter or risk going to trial. Uh, The tweet addressed to Twitter's advertiser states that he has acquired the firm. However, there has been no official confirmation that the deal has been completed. Uh, Mr. Musk also tweeted out a picture the other day that um, of, of himself walking into Twitter headquarters carrying a sink, raising speculation about his aims with the firm. It said, entering Twitter HQ, let that sink in. In business parlance, kitchen sinking means taking radical action at a company, and, and though it is not clear if that was Mr. Musk's message, he's also updated his Twitter bio to read Chief Twit. So maybe that, maybe that's another hint. Joining me now to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter is our good friend Andy Barrar. He's a technology and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Hello, Andy. Hi, Jazz. Chief Twit, Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. What's your uh, sense of all this? This has been a, a long-standing soap opera uh, to see if Elon Musk could actually get his hands on Twitter. And it looks like he's got the proverbial keys to the Twitter headquarters. And now the big question is, what is going to happen next? So just like a soap opera, this show is just going to keep continuing. Do you think he can fix things? Well, what was really interesting is when he said he's not buying it for money, but one of the first tweets he sent out was towards advertisers. And he's trying to lure advertisers to let them know that it is a great place to advertise. And he's got a tough mountain to call because one of the things he wants to do is roll out the red carpet for Donald Trump to go back onto Twitter. And for a lot of advertisers and agencies that represent those advertisers, that's the proverbial red line. Uh, if people or advertisers are going to continue working with Twitter or not. So everybody is just waiting to see what happens next. Like you mentioned, this deal will finalize on Friday. So you got the weekend and on Monday morning, Twitter is going to be a very, very different place. You raise the issue of Donald Trump, uh, the complaints about Twitter and much of social media, but particularly Twitter, is that it's so toxic uh, and that it's a, really a tough place to be for discourse. 
Uh, it is just one echo chamber yelling at another echo chamber. Uh, how do you think and can Mr. Um, Musk actually fisk, uh, fix something like that? Because uh, it all can't be done by an algorithm. It all can't be done um, by a computer because at the end of the day, you've got bots, you've got countries uh, involved in, in uh, fake news, all of those types of things. Uh, how do you fix that core challenge that Twitter has? That's the big question, Jazz. And, you know, there's been speculations that he's going to cut the staff over at Twitter as much as 75%. So, you know, the content moderation team, I'm sure that is going to be a big uh, thing that people are going to be watching for. Is he going to cut it or is he going to put more resources in it? One thing that we've heard is he actually brought some of the Tesla engineers with him to Twitter to look at their code. He wants to get into the nitty gritty about Twitter, understand the algorithm, but he's been very, very vocal about allowing it to be a platform where people could say virtually anything. How he manages, you know, the, the toxic culture that Twitter has on there, that is going to be a big challenge, considering he's a troll on Twitter himself. He, he trolls people <laughs> all the time. So, you know, it, you, you got to wonder, even if you're an advertiser, imagine if you're an automotive advertiser. Do you want to advertise on Twitter when the head of it is your competitor with Tesla? So it's a very, very interesting scenario here. Him taking a public company, a public social media company, private and twitter is not doing very well i think we all know that um compared to facebook youtube and especially tiktok with the younger people that is going to be a big challenge trying to get the younger generations back on twitter or even join twitter uh for the first time despite his comments about helping humanity is it it's just a case of a really rich guy with a really big ego uh, who probably may even deep down regret what he did and uh, and just uh, you know in, in on a whim said i'm gonna buy uh, this thing and probably may even regret it well, there's a, there's a term that people use to call uh, these billionaires who are, have these kind of eccentric personalities. They call them bullionaires, bully billionaires. And I think Elon Musk would classify as one of those because, you know, he, he's already got a lot on his place. He's got Tesla. He's got SpaceX. He's revolutionizing the electrical um, automotive industry and privatizing space at the same time. You, you just wonder what his email inbox must be. And now he's bought Twitter. And just like when you buy a new home and you want to do all the renovations on it, I think he's going to spend a lot of his time at Twitter headquarters trying to figure out what he's going to do with it now that he owns it. Is our, our social, I mean, I'm thinking of social media. You talked about uh, TikTok doing very well. It's a visual medium. People, uh, you know, comment on a variety of issues. There's different types of content. You think something, you know, a little older like Facebook, Facebook, many have said that, you know, young people just have no interest in, in that uh, type of social media. And is social media sort of at, at a moment, at a crossroads where uh, it may start seeing decline again? Or is it a quick case of just ever, ever evolving for the audience? I think it really comes down to the algorithm, Jazz. If you look at TikTok, that, they have the most powerful algorithm that I've ever seen. It is so powerful, it scares me about mm. how, how they can understand people and keep them hooked. If I was 15 and I had a smartphone and I'm on TikTok, you know, I, I, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Even as an adult, it's hard to stay off there. So I think he's gonna really look at that algorithm on Twitter to try to see if he can get people back on it and stay on it. 
And then he's got to make it profitable because he needs, with his loans that he got to make this deal happen, he's paying about $1 billion in interest. So he still has to make money <laughs> on Twitter to, to keep it alive. Otherwise, he's just burning a hole in his billionaire pocket. And um, I think that's why he did send out one of his first tweets directed towards advertisers because he does need them. But they're waiting to see what he does with people like Donald Trump and even someone like Kanye West, who now goes by Ye. Yeah, and well, I, I tell you, it's uh, if, if it's just going to be his eccentric friends being loud back on or given more time or whatever it may be, I don't think that's healthy. But if he's going to take on the bots and some of the the toxic culture that's there, then that's good for him. But you know, when he starts when you start talking about Donald Trump being allowed back, uh, I don't think that's the right direction. Most people feel that uh, social media should be going. Yeah. And the, the big question is, will Trump even go back? You know, he started his own social media, uh, you know, network, Truth Social, and that's not doing good. And you've seen all the other different types of social networks like Parler, True Social, that tried to limit and have a hands-free approach to content moderation. They're not doing very well. So Elon Musk is, you know, he's got a very different sort of challenge with him. He's got that company culture already embedded at Twitter. Now he's got to change it and get them all on board with his crazy ideas. So, like I said, this is a soap opera that just really doesn't end. Well, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what happens tomorrow, that's for sure. Andy, thank you so much. My pleasure, Jazz. Thank you. It's a big day for foodies as the Michelin Guide will finally reveal their picks for the top restaurants in Vancouver. Our show contributor, John Jang, has more. After years of waiting, Vancouver's food scene will finally receive international acclaim because tonight, the Michelin Guide will announce its first selection of Vancouver's top restaurants. And to serve up some of his favorites and perhaps the restaurants that could get their name called tonight, we're joined by Tony Kwan, a columnist over at Richmond News and a food and wine blogger. That's Trophy Wine Hunter and Trophy Food Experiences, both pages uh, you can find on YouTube. Tony, appreciate you giving us some time. It's obviously a big night. Uh, what's your excitement level heading into this evening, a milestone moment for Vancouver's food scene. Yeah, I'm really, really excited for Vancouver. It's a great thing for our city and so exciting. Um, it's going to provide so much vibrancy for the whole culinary market. So everyone's looking forward to this. Um, there's so much excitement. And I think ultimately it'd be really good for everyone because they'll bring so much attention to Vancouver and the diverse and quality cuisine that we have here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'll be a boost for tourism, right? Like it feels like the Michelin Guide. This is something that people will specifically come out just to try, just to experience, uh, maybe in the summer or something like that. So, Tony, if we're looking at some of the great restaurants across Vancouver, are there any that come to mind when you're trying to figure out like which one could be a favorite to get one of these Michelin stars tonight? Well, some of my favorites, and I think that are the leading uh, kind of restaurants in the city are restaurants like St. Lawrence, which is a French type restaurant. Um, reminds me a lot of um, restaurants that I've been to in Bordeaux, in particular, there's one called Bistro de Gabriel on the Place de Bourse. There's one called uh, Kisatanto, which is a fusion Italian-Japanese restaurant in the heart of Chinatown. Um, you, there's some dishes at Kisatanto that I've never seen anywhere else in the world. So please go check that out. Botanist in the Fairmont Pacific um, Hotel, Tojo's, which is a great Japanese restaurant, mm. uh, Chiapino, which is an Italian restaurant. 
uh, Vidge's, which is a um, Southeast Asian restaurant. There's so many. I, I don't know what to do, John, because there's so <laughs> many great restaurants and so many great choices in Vancouver. And just by that list that I've given you, you can see the diversity of cuisine that we have here. Yeah, I think it makes uh, Vancouver a world-class city for food and dining options. Tony, I'm curious, though, like when you go to a Michelin star rated restaurant, uh, of course, the food has to be delicious. That's what makes it stand out. But how important is the ambiance? Like this is something that a lot of people will grade restaurants for when you look at Google reviews or Yelp, you know, TripAdvisor, whatever it might be. How big does that play into the whole Michelin rating process? Well, Michelin does rate on it. Michelin has a number of criteria that you they use that um, normal consumers may not um, consider. So the, one of them is um, the quality of service. And so that is important. The ambiance is important. Um, the quality of service is important. So you do expect a certain standard. Having said that, um, there are also bib gourmand restaurants that are don't have stars, mm-hmm. but have good food and moderate prices. So um, you wouldn't expect rude service, but at the same point, um, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, uh, black tie or bow tie type service. It, it could be just very good quality and friendly service. Why do you think it took so long for Canada to get these Michelin star restaurants? I mean, we are talking about Toronto and Vancouver getting their first picks in 2022. It seems like this should have been done quite some time ago. I think it's just, it takes time for a culinary world to realize that we have some great cooking here in Canada and culinary um, specialties. Predominantly, uh, Michelin started in France and then uh, migrated to different places in Europe and then to um, Asia and also to the United States. So it's a natural progression. Um, You know, it took them a little bit of time, but that's good for us in Vancouver because we've had all these secret restaurants that we've been able to go to for all our lives uh, without people discovering them. So I've been encouraging my friends and my subscribers to go to all these restaurants before the rest of the world discovers them. Right, before the uh, the best-kept secrets are no longer secrets. Uh, we are in conversation with Tony Kwan, a columnist at Richmond News. Also, highly recommend you check out his social media uh, channels, uh, pages, Trophy Wine Hunter and Trophy Food Experiences. Tony, there will inevitably be some restaurants disappointed tonight because they didn't make the cut. They, uh, they, they might say, ah, oh, we tried so hard. We're not experts here. We're just people who love eating. In your experience walking and trying all these different restaurants throughout the Lower Mainland, are there ones that you think might not make the cut but are still so worthy of trying at least once in your lifetime? Yes, there are. There are many, many great restaurants in Vancouver. And unfortunately, um, there can only be a certain amount of uh, stars to give out. Uh, but that's shouldn't be discouraging for anyone because this is the first year. It's going to be tough the first year and um, it's just going to encourage uh, restaurants to uh, give better quality service and better quality food. But there's many, many restaurants. I don't know where to start. There's restaurants like Ankara, which is in the Falls Creek area, serving wonderful Peruvian cuisine. Um, there's restaurants like uh, Yuwa, which is on the west side of uh, Vancouver that's serving very artistic Japanese cuisine. Um, and there's there's uh, restaurants that are not that expensive that anyone can check out. Um, there's one that I love called Tendon Kohaku, which is, does tempura. Um, and it's not expensive at all. There's another one in West Bradbury called Gyopara that specializes in gyoza. Uh, it, it, I mean, they could potentially be rated as what they call Bid Gourmand or, or uh, Value Eats. And these are restaurants that everyone can go to at any time. And you don't have to dress up. You don't have to book in advance for three weeks in advance. So it's, 
there's so much variety in Vancouver, and, and I think it's just a wonderful time. Um, and whether whoever gets stars tonight, I don't think it doesn't really matter. Um, there it just matters that we're getting that attention and we're finally being recognized for the wonderful um, food market and tourism market that we have here in Vancouver. The majority of Metro Vancouver residents now identify as a visible minority, according to terminology used by Stats Canada in the 2021 census. And yesterday, some of that information was released, which shows that 54% of the people in the region identified as visible minority. That's up from 49% in 2016. Uh, Most uh, of our new immigrants, of the 155,000 new immigrants that have come to Vancouver in the past five years, uh, majority of them have been India and India of Indian heritage and Chinese heritage. In fact, that's just over 60,000 um, uh, residents. Now, our next guest has been around BC politics and in, recent, and in a recent piece in the Daily Hive discussed how the election outcomes are finally reflecting BC's growing ethnic diversity. Joining me now is Simrath Grewal, who is a senior consultant at Earnscliff Strategy. Simrath, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, Jazz. Uh, I got to say... Uh, long-time listener, first-time guest, so it's really great to be here. <laughs> well, good to have you. So let's uh, talk a little about, about yesterday's numbers. Uh, first time in the history of this city that uh, the visible minority population is above 50%. Uh, uh, we often talk about the changing face of Vancouver. Many would argue it has changed. Uh, someone like yourself who is involved in politics uh, at the local level, at the constituency level, what impacts have you been seeing uh, that this diversity is having uh, on, on elections at a local level? As I said in my op-ed, one of the biggest changes this municipal election cycle wasn't just in the candidates that were successful, it was in who was turning out to vote and who they were voting for. Uh, and the implications of that um, are actually quite visible. Uh, in Vancouver, you have Ken Sim. In your hometown of Williams Lake, you have Srinder Paul Rapport as mayor. And that extended throughout the province, including a number of millennials uh, that were elected. And all of this is important, not because we need to hit a quota or something like that. It affects public policy. You make better public policy when you reflect the people that you seek to govern at the decision-making table. Because everyone has different approaches and different issues when it comes to housing, transportation, the economy, healthcare. Um, and, and I think having that diversity of that decision-making table is going to change how we look at those issues and, and deal with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think we do a, a good enough job in reflecting though that diversity at the council level, at the provincial legislature, or the federal, uh, f- or at our federal government as well, or do you think still think there's more to be done? Oh, there's definitely more to be done. I, I think I think this, the results of, of this municipal election were a good start, um, but there are still many places that don't reflect the true diversity of their communities. Uh, and that, the same goes for um, whether it's the federal levels of government or provincial levels of government. Um, it, it, it needs to start with our elected officials, but run through um, the, the staff that's there, the, the, the department decision makers that exist. Um, and that is when we will have true diversity of, of thought. Why has it taken so long? I mean, it's not like this is new here. Each 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 census, we see these numbers, but why is it so hard uh, for uh, these individuals from uh, different underrepresented groups to to sort of get through that line where they are elected, uh, whether it's at the provincial level or even the local level at a deputy minister level? Why is it taking so long in your mind? Well, I think just like anything else in politics and, and government change happens at a, at a 
at a pretty slow pace. Uh, and I think there's a number of barriers that, that have been broken, uh, but still need to be broken. Uh, and one of them is how do you recruit people? How do you reflect the languages, the context, the cultures of different kind of communities that you're seeking votes from in your campaigns? Um, and I think a lot of work needs to be done there. Some good work is happening. There's a whole bunch of examples of that from this municipal election cycle, um, but there's still a lot to do. Specifically uh, to Vancouver, I keep hearing that there's been a significant increase in Chinese voters this time. Did you see that as well? Yeah, we need to drill more deeper into getting that census data that would show us uh, the exact numbers of turnouts. But what we can see is the campaign that Ken Sam and ABC ran truly reflected that diversity uh, of Vancouver in their campaign. Mm-hmm. We saw some poll- polling that com- come out that said that Ken Sim and his campaign were 30 points ahead um, um, compared to other communities in Vancouver. The, the issue of diversity, when you look at our provincial legislature, you see an NDP that is very diverse or significantly more diverse than the BC Liberals. Um, they're in opposition now. Uh, there has been you know, significant talk, particularly among its leader, uh, that, uh, that he will be pushing for greater diversity. Why do you think it's taken that party so long? Yeah, it's a really good question, uh, and I think it's one of the, the biggest challenges facing uh, the BC Liberals. Uh, right now, uh, I'm a lifelong BC liberal, uh, but there's no denying that uh, that they need to do better uh, when it comes to diversity. Uh, there's been multiple post-election reports that have said that, uh, but I can also say that Kevin Falcon is someone who's spoken extensively about fixing that uh, and talk, recruiting more diversity to the party and the candidates in the next election. Uh, I, I've also seen him in his leadership campaign have a campaign team that was almost exclusively uh, made up of racialized British Columbians. Uh, and I think that was a big part of the, the win he had. Um, I have faith in him because he's done it with a campaign team that I was proud to be a part of. Um, and we know the BC Liberals have a, a lot of opportunities and a lot of open seats right now uh, to recruit that diversity. So I think we got to stay tuned until 2024, and I think that they recognize uh, the importance of, of correcting that. Well, it's going to be a very interesting conversation, uh, a, 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 as every election cycle is, but as these numbers continue to show our our immigration numbers are well plus 400,000 people a year, we've got, uh, uh, we are truly in an era of hyper-diversity that I think Canada has never seen in regards to immigration numbers, and that is sure to continue to play a role uh, in our politics, how we vote, how we see things. It'll be an interesting uh, time for sure <laughs> during the next provincial election. Simrat, thank you so much for your time. Great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.